back. It's time for customers who click. Increasing average order value and customer lifetime value is a dream for every e-commerce owner. Upsells, bundling, cross-sells, etc. are all great ways to boost these numbers and they don't always have to be done immediately on the page when someone hits add to cart. If you can start to predict the right time to send the right offer, you're going to do far better than if you're just blasting out emails each week. Shanif Danani, founder of Aptio, joined me today to talk about how to forecast and predict which upsells to use, the pros and cons of automated versus manual upsells, and some of the challenges brands face when implementing these tactics. Let's get Shanif on now. Hi, Shanif. Thanks for joining me today. Would you mind just quickly introducing yourself? Give us a little bit of your background and uh, and what you're up to today. Hey, yeah, Well, Thanks so much for, for having me. So really excited today. So my background is mostly in data and AI and software. So you can call me sort of a data geek, a tech geek. Before this, I helped start a company called Tap Commerce, where I was the lead engineer. We were doing mobile advertising. So one of the first companies to do that, we sold the company to Twitter and I worked at Twitter for a while as a data scientist and AI, sort of building up systems that could predict things like which which ads customers were going to click on. Now today, you know, I'm the founder of Aptio and what we do is we help brands use their data to automatically segment their customers and create really personalized campaigns based on predicting what their customers are going to do next. Cool. Sounds good. So, well, let's get, yeah, let's get straight into it then. How do you keep customers clicking? I'm, you know, I'm going to be biased, but I think it's all about personalization. You know, if you send a customer a message that's going to resonate with them, then they're going to come back. You know, if it's if you're sending them something that either delights them or educates them or talks about a product that they're that they like or that they're going to want to buy, then customers are going to care more about what you have to say, and that's going to get them to click on either your ads or your campaigns or SMS messages and sort of get them to purchase. So from our perspective, you know, there's a ton that goes into customer marketing, but from our perspective, it's all about personalizing what you're sending to your customers to get them interested. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, it's what, what I've been doing with the CRM for, for years when I was in-house. You know, it's, yep. uh, you see so many businesses just send the same emails to everyone yeah. and, you, and you can tell they're going to do that because on their email capture form, they only ask for email. Got it. Yep. Right. That's so true. Obviously, once someone does start to purchase or something, you you can start to personalize a little bit there. But otherwise, it's same message, right? And if you're a, a fashion brand or your fashion skincare, you know, there's so many brands where you've got you could have male, male and female, which yeah. could be quite quite different product ranges. You could have you know vegan, non-vegan, you know, so many categories where the content is is just wrong for that person. It's not just, okay. oh, that's not for me. It's that is, that is wrong. I'm not interested in that. Yeah. Um, so, you, yeah, what's, I suppose, where to start? Like, what sort of data goes into this? You know, what, what data do you use? What data do you recommend brands collect to, to try and power this personalization? You know, it's, oh, it's so interesting. We love data. And so from our perspective, especially when you're working with AI, the more data you have, the better. But it's certainly the case that some type of data is better than others. You know, what we've seen to be the most relevant when sort of forecasting what a customer will do next is transaction data. So essentially looking at their past behavior. If you have information about the products that somebody's bought, how much they've spent in your store, you know, how many times they've even viewed a product in the past 30 days, you're going to be a lot better at sort of forecasting what they're likely to buy next. So from our perspective, transaction data is really helpful, but that's not the only sort of data that we sort of use. What, what we also find to be helpful is geography data. So where somebody lives, you know, the city, the zip code here in the States where somebody resides is actually really helpful 
and forecasting what they're going to do next. And you might think, you know, why is that? We haven't done a huge deep dive, but here, at least in the US, the zip code where you live is highly correlated to a lot of things like your socioeconomic status, your income levels. And so geography data is one of the best things to use to supplement transaction data. And then you're looking also at data where, you know, somebody's uh, browsing a product on a site. How often are they doing that? So behavioral data on a site is also really useful. So all of this information, you know, we collect about 100 and 105 different sort of pieces of information about a customer that we use to sort of forecast what they're going to do next. This is all really relevant. But to summarize, sort of the transaction side of things is really helpful. On-site behavioral data is useful. And the geography data is really useful among all the others. Yeah. And this is all to feed kind of a post-purchase personalization experience, right? Yeah, you know, what we try to do is help people, help our brands sort of personalize their marketing campaigns, their SMS campaigns, everything sort of after somebody makes a purchase. Now, you know, we did talk a little bit that we are working on on-site personalization as well, but up until now, it's been really sort of post-purchase campaigns where we're trying to understand what you're going to do next so that we can incentivize that next sale. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned some kind of the demographic stuff and and geography. It just reminded me that when I when I was in a previous role, we were looking at building out an algorithm which would kind of try and predict the potential value of someone before they had actually made a purchase on the website. Yep. So this was a it was a gambling company. So yeah, I realized it's going to come across a bit, you know, gray area what I was doing, but awesome. yeah, we were basically looking at, you know, so once people were playing, we had this predictive model, which would say, we think you're going to be a high value player. So they started to get bigger bonuses. And if we yeah. thought you were going to be a low value player, you got lower bonuses because mm-hmm. there's just not much point incentivizing someone who's, who's low value. It's, it's high risk for the business. So I was looking at how do we do this for the people who haven't converted yet? And we were looking at data like, um, some of their user behavior on site, right? So how quickly did they sign up in the first place? Did they pick a pick a sign up offer and then and then go with it? Or did they kind of come back, pick a different one? You know, did they chop and change their mind a little bit? Did they make a deposit and not play? Uh, did they not make a deposit? Did they have an account on one of our other websites as well? That was obviously that was obviously really key because if they had a VIP account on another website, then that's that's a massive signal for you. And if they had a kind of red flag account, then that's also another signal. So, But another thing we were trying to look into was that geography data and saying, yeah. well, with, you know, this person lives in a an affluent area, therefore probably a bit more disposable income. So we can we can nudge them a bit further. Not sure how far they got with it because I, I left while that was in progress. But it's just interesting the amount of, the amount of external data you can actually pull in. That doesn't even have to be like actual personal like personal data so yeah. obviously if, if they've given me the postcode i can then do kind of a check on that postcode to see what the area is like but that's not personal data that i'm that someone might be concerned about if you get what i mean totally get it it's yeah. it's useful it's not super personally it's not what we call pii personally identifying information you know it's not relevant yeah. to one person by themselves but it's actually really helpful, uh, as you were mentioning in your former project. And as we've seen, it's still very helpful in sort of understanding what a customer can do and is likely to do next. Yeah. So how much weight, like what, what's a strong indicator? So, you know, if I, if I turn up on a website and buy a black t-shirt and, and I did that quite quickly, you know, didn't browse too much, just I wanted a black t-shirt. How, how much weight does that have in the algorithm? 
or how, you know, how much weight would you recommend people put on that? Uh, I'd say it's a strong indicator that I've just gone in straight away and bought a black t-shirt, but it's not necessarily what I'm going to want all the time. That's it's true. And so, you know, when you've got somebody who's made a single purchase, you're not obviously, you're obviously not going to be as accurate when predicting someone who's made 10 purchases in the past, you know, the more data you have, the better off you're going to be. That being said, there are a lot of very similar trends across customer behavior, even after one purchase, at least with the brands that we work with, their, you know, their gateway products, about 50 to 70% of the time, it's the same product. So customers are coming in, buying one product to start with, and then you can start to break down what are these customers doing next after their first purchase, their second purchase, their third purchase. So one thing that's really interesting for us is actually customers do tend to come back and buy the same product again. It's really surprising and really fascinating. But customers who like maybe that black t-shirt really like it enough to come back and buy another one, maybe as a backup or as a gift. Now, that's not true for every brand. So you know, with our technology, what happens is we build sort of these these custom specific models automatically per brand. So something that's happening at a shoe store, for example, might not happen at a dress store, might not happen at, a, let's say, a vitamin supplement store. So it is different, but we do see these patterns across multiple customers where um, you know, one product accounts for what people buy almost exclusively or at least 50% of the time. And then those customers go on to buy something very similar, sometimes even often the same product. So while I can't speak for everyone, you know, it's interesting to note that this customer behavior does exist. Yeah, yeah, I suppose it makes sense, doesn't it? What was I going to ask? What, what can how how should brands get started with this? Like, if they're going to do it, yeah. I suppose on their own initially to you know to investigate things. Yeah. What's where would you recommend beginning? What would you say your tips are? Or like you know, top tips and top things to avoid in yeah. trying to create this because we we've also want to talk about automated versus manual recommendations. So, yeah. I suppose this is if you're going down that. I guess a bit more manual route. What do you need to be thinking about? How do you get it right? How do you get it wrong? It's, it's there's so many places you know you can start when it comes to using data to to personalize what you're doing. One of the first things I'd recommend is just getting your data all together, centralize it somewhere. You know, most people have a Shopify account or a WooCommerce or BigCommerce account. They've got Clavio, they've got Postscript, Attentive, whatever it is, all spread out across many different areas. And sometimes it's just a matter of getting everything into one sort of place, either a database or even a spreadsheet. And that can get you a lot, a lot of information to start with. But if you're doing this manually, let's assume that you've got everything sort of in one place. I would say start simple, you know, start looking at the products that are most frequently purchased together. Maybe you've got one or two products that account for a large portion of your sales as, as a single bundle and you didn't bundle them together. So what you can do is say, all right, everybody who bought product A, we're just going to send them product B as a as a offer and maybe have them buy product B. And so you start small. You figure out the things that you can start to do to move the needle. You know, which group of people ended up doing X after doing Y? Which group of people are sort of my inactive customers? You know, it doesn't matter what I send them because they're not likely to come back. So maybe I'll just send them a really large discount. Which group of people are my biggest spenders? So you can start to filter all this out uh, using a spreadsheet. And it does take a little bit of time, but what I would recommend doing is sort of coming up with your high level objectives for what you're trying to do in your marketing campaigns, figuring out what groups of people are best suited for those objectives, and then start, you know, experimenting with emails and SMS that go out to those folks and seeing what the results are from there. Yeah. And uh, you said it, it takes a bit of time. Do you, do you think you have to be a bit of a, a data, a data geek? Like, do you? you yeah, you yeah. definitely Definitely can't be afraid of data. That's for sure. You know, if you're looking at a large sheet of numbers and 
you want to run away, you know, you probably aren't going to be well suited for some tasks like this. That being said, you don't need to be, you know, you don't need to have a PhD in data science. You don't need to know how AI works because then it's just a matter of finding some simple trends and it doesn't need to take, you know, days, but it does need to be sort of one of those things where you, you do it, you maintain the data, you keep looking at it once a week or once every couple of weeks, sorting, filtering, you know, VLOOKUPs, those are, those will get you, you know, 50 to 60% of the way just starting at least with the very sort of simpler techniques. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, it's about automated, automated versus manual recommendations. Obviously, I suppose the advice is going to be automate it because it's going to be more dynamic, but I, I suppose what are the differences in terms of time requirement, data requirement, which is which is actually easier to get going with? Yeah, it kind of, a lot of it sort of goes back to what are your marketing goals? You know, are you focused exclusively on new customer acquisition or are you doing retention? Are you doing both? Are you a lifecycle marketer? Ultimately, the goal of, you know, automating these recommendations is so that you can, the goal of any sort of better data marketing campaign is so you can grow sales. What we've seen the best brands do uh, is focus on both sort of new customer acquisition as well as lifecycle marketing, but they use data across both. So when it comes to automated versus manual, if you've got automated, if you've got any automated processes set up, you're going to be a lot better off. You know, you can use an automated system to sort of create your new customer acquisition ads. And then you can go one step further and sort of create your targeted set of lookalike audiences using automation rather than you having to go through and do it yourself. For cross-sales, particularly, this is an area where automation works really well. If you're a brand that's got hundreds of products, you as a, as a marketer aren't going to be able to go through and match each customer with their best product. But that's where sort of automation makes a big difference. You've got a system that can match sort of a product with the customer, and that product might not be one of your best sellers. It might never have occurred to you to match that product. So automation makes a lot of sense when you are sort of, when you have a system up and running that you want to tweak, that you've got enough data for, that you sort of have all of these patterns hidden in the data, but you don't have the time or a data scientist or a team to go through and do it all yourself. And that's when it really starts to shine because then you can start to optimize all sorts of flows and campaigns and get a lot of extra revenue from that. Yeah. Okay. So I suppose... Yeah, there's a bit of a mix of both, right? You know, if, if you haven't got the data on people, then it makes a bit more sense to use either manual or slightly automated. You know, you could use kind of recommend your best sellers, for example, which I suppose is automated in a way. But man- manual has its benefits. Yeah, when you don't know, when you just don't have the data on, you know, maybe you collect a bit of zero party data so they tell you which category they're interested in. Yeah, and you can provide some recommendations based on that. But you, you're kind of stepping in and saying that's what we need to put in front of them. Whereas, when that data level becomes just potentially huge, then that's where automation kind of not kicks in. It's already kicked in, but that's where automation really uh, shines. Because, like you said, when you said it might recommend automation might recommend a product that you wouldn't have really thought to recommend this person. That's where it gets really interesting, where you're saying, well, because of this person's behavior, we're not going to recommend this to them because actually this one thing they did seems to indicate that they are this type of shopper instead. And where, you know, when you're using automation, you might not even need to come up with that analysis yourself. You know, you've got a really sort of sophisticated AI that can find those patterns and do the automation yourself. And it might be one thing, it might be a confluence of six or seven things that all play together that, you know, you would never have found yourself 
looking at the data because we're just not as great as great as sort of combining multiple things into a single analysis. Yeah, I suppose you, you're going to be looking at those trends, aren't you? Uh, if you if you get that automation in place and suddenly a product that is almost never sold has now shoots up your list of, of most popular products, you're going to want to start yeah. to look into that and, and identify why. And I, I don't know, it could be the case that it's automating a, a really cheap upsell. Right. And, and right. you get so many people saying, yeah, for an extra 10 quid or $10, I'll, I'll just add that to my cart. And it just seems to be the same thing that works for everyone. Or I, I don't know, you know, it could be a gift card, right? And it, it just, be, yeah. AI, AI just, you know, the automation kind of works out that actually everyone's happy to buy a gift card, right? You know, right at the end of their, of their journey, just add on a 10 pound gift card. It could be, you know, every brand is different, but every brand has these patterns. You know, every brand that's selling more than one or two products, they've got these patterns. And by leveraging these patterns, you can you can definitely increase your average order value and your lifetime value. Yeah. Well, one thing I really want to try, I've not been able to test this yet, is if someone is in the cart with a basket which is lower than your free shipping threshold, mm-hmm. probably probably within about, let's say, $10, 10 pounds then offer a gift card for either a fixed 10 yeah. or if, if you can do it, then whatever that custom amount is, that, that gets them to the free shipping threshold. I really wonder how well that would do because small upsells work really well, right? Yeah. You know, if, you, if you can get yeah. someone to spend an extra five, 10 pounds on a, you know, let's say on a hundred pound basket, you know, you get quite a decent uptake on that, but the benefit of giving the, of the gift card is you potentially get another customer as well. That's they might great. use that gift card themselves, in which case you get a second purchase, which is great, but also they might give that card to someone else. So it's, it's, that's something I really, really want to try. I think that's a great idea. I think that, you know, we haven't seen too many of our brands try that out yet, but you know, having that free shipping after a, you know, whatever it is, a hundred pounds or a hundred dollars is a great tactic, especially with your big spenders. And if you can get somebody above that threshold, it's a win-win for everyone. So I think that's a fantastic idea. We'd love to see sort of how that performs down the line. Yeah. I'd have to think who I can test it with. Lots of brands have, lots of brands do have low shipping thresholds I've found. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I did work. I worked with one last year where their free shipping threshold was almost yeah, it was it was about double their AOV. Okay. Which obviously wasn't wasn't really working for them. Yeah. So we, we brought it down, brought it down quite a lot, and that really improved conversion and, and average order value. Wow. But a lot of the other brands that I've worked with, their average order value is is you know comfortably above above the, the threshold. Okay. Well, that's great. And then it's I mean, well, do you do you start increasing the threshold to then test yeah. things out or or do you just say that's that's cool? Let's leave it there. Um, so, what what sort of challenges do you see for brands at the moment in making this work? I know you said you know having all your data in one place, but what are the, I suppose what are they? Maybe not the challenges. What are the mistakes people can make when trying to do this? You know, the biggest thing we've seen is people just don't think about doing this. You know, sometimes they don't even have recommended products on a product page, or sometimes they're just sending out. Uh, the same offer and the same products to their entire list of a million customers. And what we've seen sort of the biggest challenge is that people don't either don't want to, or don't know that they should take the extra, you know, 
30 minutes to segment out their customers to figure out who's most likely to buy what products and then send them different messages. And you can do this manually, again, like we said, where you find people who are likely to buy products yourself, or you can use tools kind of like what we have or what good email tools have, where you can sort of insert the most relevant products for each customer automatically. So you as a marketer don't even need to do anything. And what we've seen is, you know, most people just aren't even doing this to start with. So it may, it may not be a challenge, but it's certainly a mistake where, you know, you're sending the same message to the same group of people across your entire list. Now, let's say you have a little bit more sophistication. You've got more time. A lot of what we're seeing is people are setting up automatic rules or people are setting their own rules rather than sort of automating this. So they, they say, Hey, I know my business. Like I know that people who buy this product are going to go ahead and buy this product. And you know what? Maybe you're right. But if you've got, like I said, a couple of hundred products, you know, the rule system breaks down pretty quickly and, you know, you as a human sort of can't go through and optimize everything, but maybe you're still trying to. And so that's definitely a mistake that we've seen people make where maybe they're not automating things as quickly as they should. The other thing we're seeing is... Sorry, I just want to just comment on that. I mean, uh, well, I I said it a few minutes ago, right? The the automation might just pick up on a a random products and start promoting that. But in the example of manually picking those product client i worked with last year we we ran a, a post-purchase upsell right and so it was they were they were selling pillows right so the post-purchase upsell if they didn't have these in their basket we offered them pillowcases mm. right kind of makes sense yeah. that's that's what you would add right the take rate was abysmal no one no one wanted them got some theories about that you know colors materials and things but what we found really worked was selling them another pillow yeah. Which yeah. was slightly weird because this was like an orthopedic pillow. So it, it fits, you know, you can't stack them. It doesn't work like that. I use the yeah. one pillow. So I'm selling on that, that, that second pillow just worked. And uh, that came out about through, through testing. So that was still a manual process, but it was, it, my point is the, the obvious upsell didn't work at all. And so, yeah, yeah, that is, yeah, I get that. That's a mistake you can make, particularly, I, I suppose, particularly as you grow, right? As it, when you're a smaller business, you, you might have that very obvious trend of people who buy this, buy that. Yeah. But then, yeah, as you start to add more products to your website, as your, as your traffic scales up, that's probably going to start disappearing unless you have quite, quite niche like product categories and things where, you know, it's, it, that's always going to be the case that people will buy yep. that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, you know, sometimes people just want the same thing again. So it's very interesting behavior. Yeah. So, sorry, you were going to mention a second thing? Yeah. So I get the other challenge. What was I going to say? Let's see here. The other thing I think people aren't doing is just taking a look at the trends. You know, they just assume, hey, people are doing this and I know people are going to do that. And so they're just kind of going off assumptions, but there are a lot of great tools out there where you can see, okay, given somebody bought this product, what's the likelihood of buying this or that, you know, and they're just looking at the data, I think is one of those things where people just aren't doing it. You know, they're sending out sort of campaigns, not, and again, this isn't everyone. I've actually found agencies are really good at looking at data and trying to come up with campaigns, but maybe overworked brands, they aren't looking at sort of the trends that are in their store. They aren't looking at what people are going through and purchasing. And so for them, it's a little bit more of a, of a guesswork process. And, you know, if they've got the right tools installed, all they have to do is go take a quick look at a product, you know, product analytics page 
and see, okay, people who bought this, what did they go out and buy next? And then just incorporate that. So I think the challenge is here that people aren't taking the time to do sort of this, to grab the low hanging fruit. And this happens with everyone we work with. And I totally get it because most people love their products. Most marketers aren't used to sort of doing this. It hasn't been part of their repertoire. But now that these tools exist, I think it's going to make it easier for marketers to do these sorts of things. And my hope is we see fewer of these you know, mistakes or lack of looking at data when people are coming up with their campaigns. Yeah. Do you, do you think maybe not too much data is a problem, but is it easy to get, get a bit overwhelmed, get a bit, over, I suppose, over-enthusiastic about yeah. the data you're looking at and just try and try and do a bit of everything. And I guess when, when that comes to things like marketing, sorry, email marketing, yeah, you're almost like over-segmenting and basically creating too much work for yourself because you're trying to segment too much and personalize too much. I've seen this this concept come up a lot recently, you know, the concept of over-segmenting. And I, you know, I think most brands have the opposite problem. There might be some really sophisticated brands out there. You know, if you've got a segment of 33 people who are going to buy a product, then yeah, you've probably gone too far. It's not worth your time. And for each brand, obviously that number is going to be different. So for a brand that where they have a segment of 2000 people, that might be great, but for another brand that might be too small, but you as a marketer, it is your job to sort of go through and target people with the messages that they're most likely to respond to. You can certainly go too far, but I just find that most people have the opposite problem. Most people aren't going far enough. And once that becomes the case where people are going too far, I think we're going to be in from a marketing perspective and my perspective, we're going to be in great shape and we're going to say, Hey, you guys don't need to get that far. And that's also where I think sort of dynamics, dynamic solutions can help where maybe now, instead of sending out 15 or 20 emails to different segments, you're sending out two or three emails but those emails have personalized dynamic recommendations where it shows different things to different customers. Same with Facebook ads, like dynamic product ads. So you can do these, I would recommend sort of using a combination of segmentation plus automation and dynamic automation to really make these high-performing campaigns rather than wasting time on like very, very, very hyper-targeted segments. But again, it depends for each brand. Yeah, I think it makes sense. I think... uh segmentation can be used for a very different reason to personalization. I think segmentation can be a lot more about timing and obviously like exclusions and, and, and certain things like that, but in terms of the content that you're putting in there, yeah, that's, that's where, yeah, it's, it's easier just to use dynamic content. So the same email can be sent, you know, well, like abandoned carts, for example, right. You're not yeah. going to segment that, you know, hundreds of thousands of times for every, yeah. every possibility that you'd want to. That is dynamic content. It just puts the right message in front of the in front of the person. Absolutely. So, how do you how do you make sure you're always improving things? I'm a big fan of testing things in multiple ways. So, from a startup and business owner perspective, we're constantly testing our pricing. We're constantly testing our messaging, trying new groups of customers, trying different marketing campaigns, sort of seeing what works. Because what I've learned is that for most businesses, you're going to have maybe maybe one to two, maybe three channels and processes that are bringing in you know, 80% or 90% of your customers. And this is, again, from my perspective as a SaaS B2B owner. But the same concept holds true for, for everyone. Like if you're, a B2C, if you're a D2C marketer, direct marketer, you, know, you can try different things like A-B testing campaigns. You can try different flows. You can try text-only emails versus image emails. A lot of, some of our brands have had success with that. So always, always testing, always sort of looking at you know, your data, 
and seeing, okay, what's working, what's not, where are we falling short? Is it top of the funnel? Is it middle of the funnel? So me again, I'm biased, I'm a data guy, looking at the data, using testing and A-B testing to figure out what's working well, and then making incremental changes based on that. Every so often, you might have to make a major change, but what you kind of do in those cases is you take a look at everything you've, like all the data you've accumulated over the past, whatever it is, three months, six months, and you kind of go with what that data is telling you, but there's also a feeling of like, what's your gut instinct telling you? I would always recommend never sort of ignoring what your gut instinct is telling you. But ultimately, what I'm saying is collect data, test different things, gather that data, and use it to make better decisions over time. Yeah, I think it makes sense. I think on you mentioned plain versus plain email versus HTML, which I, I think is a good point. And I think it's important to kind of test big things, or at least, you know, really think is this going to make an impact or could we be doing something better? You know, so many people test subject lines on emails yeah. and yeah. given the tracking issues now, that's even less reliable. But you know, most of the time, all right, you might get a 10% increase in, in open rates from you know uh, the average newsletter, like 20%, so to 22%. Yeah. It's not going to make a massive difference, but you know, if you uh, if you go from HTML to plain text, you might you know the revenue might double yeah. from that email, yeah, and that's that suddenly makes a big difference. And then you can start testing that everywhere else. So, I think yeah, uh, obviously I I'm in conversion rate optimization. I'm testing all the time, but it's important to do you know big tests, right? We always talk about changing button button colors. Yeah, right? <laughs> yes. that's that's the one that. It just seems to have stuck with everyone. You know, I, I get asked this every now and again on a sales call as well uh, about you know colors of buttons, and it's like, yeah, I mean, you can test it, but unless uh, unless you've got a, like a ghost button that blends into the background, yeah. you, you're not going to do much difference, right? And it, and it always came about because there was a, a case study years ago. Yeah. where they, inc- they increased conversion rate by a massive amount because they went from a, a whatever yeah. button to an orange button. And it was pretty much purely the fact that this button actually stood out on the page. Yeah, I remember. Uh, that's, there's probably some questionable data behind it as well, like not enough data, but yeah. that's, now, that's now stuck. And, and for years, it became kind of best practice to use orange buttons. <laughs> and, and that's just what everyone went by. But yeah, anyway. Enough of that rant. But yeah, the, the point is, yeah, test. Really think is this test going to actually make an impact, or are we just testing for for testing's sake? It's a great point. Yeah, it's a great point. Absolutely. Cool. So, who is there anyone in the in the kind of DTC marketing space or e-commerce marketing space that you'd want to sit down with? There's a few sort of there's a few people we follow. So there's one email marketer. His name is Chase Diamond. We've sort of communicated in the past. Really well known guy. He's got great copy, great tips, but he's also a great guy. Would love to sort of spend more time with him. I think there's a couple of brands that I really sort of appreciate. Let's see, Allbirds being one of them. Would love to sort of chat with their marketer, see what they're up to. I think those you know those are the couple of those are the types of folks I'd like to kind of sit and and have dinner with. Obviously, Nick Sharma, you know, he's got a huge sort of space in the world of e-commerce. Neil Patel, he's got a really, he's done a really good job of sort of branding himself. So these are folks that I think have done a really good job of building up a brand, personally, like making it very clear how to drive a lot of sales. And it would be great to just grab lunch with them, chat with them about how they've worked and sort of what tips they have, I, I think. 
yeah, some great names in there. It's an interesting one. Neil Patel. I don't hear his name so much anymore. I don't know why. Interesting. Maybe I just have kind of fallen off his audience radar sort of thing. Yeah. But he's, I mean, I wouldn't say the reason I got into marketing, but had a massive influence on me. You know, I used to read a lot yeah. of his blogs all the time. I think he did, didn't he? Did or does the Marketing School podcast? He, I don't know if he's got, I don't know what podcast he has, but he is very prolific in blogging and YouTube videos. I'm sure content. he's got a podcast. So. Yeah, all the time. Yeah, lots and lots of content from him. Yeah. Awesome. Really great, great stuff. You know, always, always keen to hear more about kind of data personalization and things. If anyone wants to reach out and find out more, what's the best way of doing that? Uh, I think best way, so you can check us out at our website, which is aptio.co. That's eo.co. You also feel free to email me directly. My name is Shanif at aptio.co. That's S-H-A-N-I-F. We've also got, you know, we've, we're on Twitter, aptio AI and LinkedIn. So feel free, you know, you can search for the term and, you'll, and we'll come up. But we're always happy to chat with brands. You know, we do free consultations. We do a free trial. Yeah, if you're interested in using data or personalization, I would say feel free to reach out. We'll offer your listeners a discount as well. Oh, awesome. Thank you. All right. Cheers, Shanif. Thanks. Thank you so much. It's been great chatting with you. Take care, Will. You too. I see a lot of brands trying to run upsell offers at various stages of the customer journey, but quite often it's done with little thought as to uh, what the upsell should be. And sometimes it just doesn't work for that business. You might not have the right product range for it. Uh, your, your products don't complement each other, for example. Um, I, I see upsells working well when either the upsell is you know, 15 to 20% of the value of the main product or, or the basket. Uh, let's say you're buying a printer, uh, I'd upsell you some ink, for example. Or I see it work when the average price of the products on the website is quite low. So maybe 30 to 50 pounds or dollars uh, might be the sort of product that customers will happily buy several different pieces of jewellery, for example. Do look into upsells. I do recommend it. When done with a reasonable amount of sense to it, it works. And I'm yet to see a decrease in conversion rate. But obviously, don't do what airlines do and put five steps of upsells in front of people. Uh, you're just going to cause them to, to exit the website. If you'd like to hear more from Shanif, uh, you can reach out to him on Twitter or LinkedIn. Any other podcast questions, feedback or guest requests, please send them over to willacustomerswhoclick.com or DM me on LinkedIn. Next up, I've got the Ruthie Sterrett joining me. We're going to be talking about why it's important to sort your brand and organic content first before you start scaling ads. But until then, keep those customers clicking.